I just started a summer institute class in my area. Hello to any of my students that are listening. Focused on improving our scripture study skills. This week, we kicked off class by identifying the two most important questions asked in scripture. In Mosiah 11, King Noah asks, after hearing about the prophet Abinadi, Who is Abinadi that I and my people should be judged of him? Or who is the Lord that shall bring upon my people such great affliction? Similarly, when Alma preaches to the people in Ammonihah, they asked him in indignation, Who art thou? And who is God? In this episode, we examine one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, David and Goliath, with a fresh perspective and in search of answers to those two questions. Welcome to the Scripture Study Project. We are your hosts, Krista and Zach Horton, and this is our podcast where we study Scripture with you. Our goal each week is to help you discover new or renewed excitement for God and His Word, invest your heart and personal life into your study, and connect with others as you teach and learn together. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's study. Uh, I am alone this week, I gave Krista a break, uh, but I am really excited about this block of scripture, about this the stories that are here. These are some of my favorite in the Old Testament, which isn't saying a lot because I have probably said that about a lot of different chapters. Um, but as I mentioned in the preface, I am really excited and passionate about reading this particular really well-known Old Testament story of David and Goliath in maybe a new light and hopefully in a way that helps us learn more about the Lord and who he is, his character, personality, and attributes, and about ourselves and who we are in relationship to him and how it is that we go about actually accomplishing Goliath-sized tasks. So, um, in fact, in connection with that, uh, I love this quote from Joseph Smith, and it crops up uh, now and again in my, in my studies. And every time I notice it or think about it, I have to stop and just marvel at what it does to reframe our understanding of what Scripture is all about. So it's a little bit long. I'll try and emphasize the points that I think are meaningful, but it's worth it. He says this, Think for a moment of the greatness of the being who created the universe, and ask, could he be so inconsistent with his own character as to leave man without a law or rule to regulate his conduct after placing him here? In other words, does it seem reasonable to you that God, putting us here on the earth, would leave us without any kind of instruction manual for how to do this life thing? And then he continues, this is not the case. The voice of reason, the language of inspiration, and the spirit of the living God, our creator, teaches us as we hold the record of truth in our hands that this is not the case. For the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. And a moment's reflection is sufficient to teach every man of common intellect that all these are not the mere production of chance, nor could they be supported by any power less than by an almighty hand. And now here's the part where scripture comes in. And he that can mark the power of omnipotence inscribed upon the heavens can also see God's own handwriting in the sacred volume. And he who reads it oftenest will like it best. And he who is acquainted with it will know the hand wherever he can see it. In other words, when you look at the universe, uh, it's as Alma said to Korhor, you can't help but believe that there is a God 
divinely inspiring and conducting everything. And so if you're someone that can look at the universe and see that, then you can also look at the sacred volume at this text and see God's handwriting in the scriptures. And once you see it in the scriptures, you begin to recognize it in your own life. And so taking a story like this of David and Goliath and inserting into it a focus where we're identifying where the Lord is and what he does and how he interacts with people is incredibly helpful as we then look back at our own lives because I can see what God is doing or saying here in this story. Maybe I can then better recognize what he's doing in my own life when I am David and facing some kind of a Goliath. So with that in mind, uh, to each question, I want to propose a, a different reading of the story than at least than I have traditionally had that I think helps us answer the question. So for the first one, who am I? David, when he goes against Goliath, of course, you know the story. It's the Philistines against the Israelites. And the way that they handle con uh, battle here isn't, in this particular case, by throwing both of their armies against each other, even though that does happen. This is called trial by conquest. And what it is, is you have the Israelites on one hill or mountain and the Philistines on the other hill or mountain. And they agree that instead of putting their two armies together and losing thousands and thousands of lives, that they're each going to send forth a champion. And so the Philistines send forth Goliath, who is depending on, there's a whole body of literature on how tall Goliath was. Uh, if you take it at face value that he's, you know, the cubits and spans, then he could be almost 10 feet tall, nine feet and nine inches tall. Uh, but there's, of course, some disagreement on how big a span is, if we're using a modern arm or an ancient arm or whatever. He is somewhere between six and a half, seven feet and nine and a half, ten feet, somewhere in that range. Uh, he is Saul, who's the king of the Israelites, is a large person. He's a head above everyone else. And Goliath has to be at least taller than Saul. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't remark about his size and his height in the text. So however big he is, to the people there, he was giant. And so the Philistines send forth Goliath with all of his armor. He's armored like an infantryman. And the Israelites probably should have had Saul go forward. He is the tallest, and he was specifically uh, adored by the people because of his height and his strength. Of course, Saul turns, like the rest of the Israelites, in fear. And so it's David that then self-appoints himself as the champion of Israel. And uh, when he comes forward, he takes, of course, Saul puts all of his armor on him. David says, I don't want your armor. It's not proved. Instead, I'll just take the sling and five stones and my sword and I'll go out. Uh, and this, to, to maybe place this in a better context, um, this isn't quite as lopsided as it may seem. Uh, if you go back to Judges chapter 20, verse 16, there's this interesting reference to uh, slingers. It says there were 700 chosen men left-handed. Everyone could sling stones at an hair breadth and not miss. In fact, in ancient Near Eastern battles, there were uh, slingers. They kind of took the place of, of, of um, archers, and they would do exactly what David did. They'd get their stones. Uh, they would sling them. They could sling them at a speed that was deadly and an accuracy 
uh, as close to anything else, any other projectile warrior. And so when David comes forward with a sling, uh, it's not just David with his poor sling against Goliath with all of his weapons. It's David who's being very strategic and wise in how he faces off against the opposing champion. But it is interesting, and I think here's where the alternate reading comes in that's powerful, that David chooses stones to battle against Goliath who has chosen steel or metal or man-made materials. There's this thread throughout the Old Testament, and maybe you've noticed it, where the Lord, uh, for example, when he's instructing the Israelites to build an altar, he will tell them to build the altar out of stone and earth, not to build it out of metal or other things that they might have, have constructed. And David does the same thing. He takes these earthen stones and he uses them to defeat Goliath. And the stone, the image of a stone, is actually thematic in this whole story. And if you trace the theme, trace the thread of the stone, it helps us understand something about ourselves. So uh, back to 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1, or at least the first couple of verses. When we first meet the Philistines, the Israelites go and fetch the ark of God because they think that this, this ark um, will force God's presence to be with them, even though they are not being obedient to his commandments or loyal to his commandments. They think that the mere presence of the ark uh, will save them out of the hands of their enemies, as it says in verse 3. Uh, it doesn't work. The Philistines capture the ark. God uh, can't let his presence be held with the Philistines, and so he there's all of these plagues that come when the Philistines have the ark with them, and they eventually return to the Israelites. But the point is, the Israelites are trying to force God's presence. Uh, fast forward 10 more chapters, and Saul does the exact same thing, not with the Ark of the Covenant, uh, but with another means of connecting to God. In chapter 13, Saul is waiting for Samuel to come and, as the Lord's anointed, guide the battle. Um, and he's getting impatient. Samuel doesn't come at the appointed time. And so in verse 9, Saul says to his servants, bring me a burnt offering, a peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. And later he'll admit to Samuel, I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. So here's two examples of people trying to force God's presence, which obviously does not work. And of course, in Saul's case, uh, it loses him the kingdom. In contrast to that, Samuel teaches that success comes through this. This is 1 Samuel 7, verse 3. And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If you do return unto the Lord with your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. In other words, success in battle comes from the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but if I can pause here, this has incredible relevance to me because I am always, always guilty of trying to do something difficult on my own. Now, if it's a religious task, uh, if it's connected to you know, my church calling, then of course it, it uh, maybe is a little bit more natural to think about prayer and, and scripture study. But but when it comes to other difficult tasks that aren't overtly connected to the gospel, parenting tasks or community tasks or house uh, projects, I go it alone. 
And I have to constantly remind myself that success in any kind of Goliath task or in any task of any size uh, can come and lastingly does come from the Lord. And that's what Samuel is saying to his people. Uh, This success that will come in this battle will come from the Lord. David gets this point, and when he's facing off against Goliath, he says that. This is uh, verse 45. Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. So David gets it. Now, the stone, where does the stone come in? Well, Samuel gives that counsel to his people. They go and they war against the Philistines and they have a victory. And then in verse 12, Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Uh, The footnote there is helpful. The Hebrew translation of Ebenezer is a stone of help. In this particular battle, where the Israelites did return to the Lord and the Lord delivered them and gave them success, Samuel chooses an indicator, a marker of that success that is earthly uh, and natural to symbolize God can succeed in his work through the hands and the means of earthly, maybe even mortal or weak means. Think about all the times that stones are used either literally or symbolically in scriptures. I'll name a couple. I'm sure you could think of many more, but uh, Joseph Smith is given a seer stone to translate and later a Urim and Thummim, which are also stones. Um, He will remark about himself that he is a rough stone rolling down a hill that has to be smoothed by life in order to be polished for the Lord's service. The brother of Jared, when he builds the barges and takes those across uh, the ocean, he selects stones and asks the Lord to touch those stones so that they glow. John the Baptist, in his ministry, if you remember the the, um, Jewish leaders come to him and they critique him, um, claiming we are the sons, we are the children of Abraham. And and, uh, John the Baptist says, God is able of these stones to raise up children and Abraham. Um, he's, he's equating stones with the average person, maybe even the Gentiles. God can take anything, any stone, any mortal, earthen, imperfect stone, and he can use it to make something great happen. There's that great reference in the Book of Mormon, Ether 12, 27, where the Lord says that he gives unto men weakness that they may be humble so that they accept his grace, which is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before him. I hear that misquoted a lot. It's not that the Lord gives us weaknesses. It's that the Lord gives us weakness. He knows in his plan that we are going to have mortal weakness. We are stones. And the only way that we can ever hope to accomplish something great or grand is if the Lord takes our stone and uses it in his hands to do something great. Um, that's what an Ebenezer is. It's a stone that has been divinely touched so that it provides help. It does something great. Now, the really practical question I think that comes from that is to reflect on our weakness. And I'm not talking about weaknesses in terms of sin or rebellion. That's not weakness, that's sin or rebellion. We're talking about the things that we might 
chastise in ourselves. We might get frustrated about, I, I wish I wasn't this, or I wish I wasn't that, or I wish I wasn't this. And of course, there's a place for growth and development and setting goals and improving on personal things. But there's also a place to look at our weakness, to look at our humanity and say, what could God do through me? Um, this story of Samuel on the surface is very obviously about how God can take the least in a family. He first chooses Saul to be king, even though Benjamin is the least of all the tribes. And he chooses David to be king, even though David is the youngest in his family. That pattern is throughout scripture where God deliberately chooses the weakest, the smallest, the most insignificant, and chooses that individual to do something great through so that he can prove if I can do it with Saul or I can do it with David, I can do it with you. If I can slay Goliath with a stone, certainly I can use you to do great and incredible things. So I think it's a really fascinating kind of self-study to ask ourselves, what are my stones? Um, what is my my personality, my characteristics? What are my traits that are weak, uh, mortal, earthen, imperfect? And then what could I do to take those to the Lord and use his guidance and direction so that I can do something great, even though uh, I'm just a stone? That's the first reading and hopefully answers the question of who am I? At least one answer to the question. I am a stone. And it's a good thing to be a stone because God can do great things through a stone. The second question, who is the Lord? This is my favorite reading of this story. I love looking at ourselves as David and how we can accomplish and, and beat Goliath. I've taught this number of times to seminary students and institute students, and it's a great way, a great lens to use to study the scripture uh, story uh, to put ourselves in David's shoes. I'm not entirely positive that that's the only intent of the author. In fact, I don't even know if it's the main intent of the author. I think it's okay for us to read ourselves into the story as David, but I don't know if that's the intent. And here are some of my clues that indicate that there might be something deeper going on here. If you go back to when Saul was chosen as king, this is chapter 9, verse 2, the descriptions it gives of Saul, the, the qualifications that he has to be king is Saul, a choice young man and a goodly. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. Now that's not good. Goodlier deals with his physical appearance. From his shoulders upward, he was higher than any of the people. Uh, when Saul is selected, anointed as king, the people adore him because he is physically very representative of what a king should look like. Remember, this is the people that said, we want a king like all the other nations. It's not just about we want leadership. It's we want leadership that looks like everybody else's leadership. We want a king that we can compare and put on Instagram and show this is my king. Look, he looks just as great as everybody else's king. In fact, he's better. He's taller. He's bigger. That's my king. Of course, there are some really big failings with that because Saul buys into his own image and as the story progresses, uh, becomes haughty, becomes egotistical, uh, and that eventually leads to his downfall, right? He, he forces himself uh, to, forces the Lord, forces an, an offering. He disobeys Samuel's commandments. He falls, and even after he's fallen as king, he still persists. He gets frustrated when anyone else gets more acclaim than he does. That's Saul the king. What's interesting is, and I think this is deliberately intended to be read this way, you contrast Saul as king with David as king. A really well-known verse in 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel goes to Jesse's house to pick the king, 
He first looks at the oldest son, Eliab, and says, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. This must be the king. He's the oldest in this family. And the Lord says to Samuel, It's not him. In fact, verse 7, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature. That's deliberately in reference to Saul. Because I, the Lord, have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. In other words, David isn't going to be selected because of how tall he is. David's going to be selected because of the way that his heart, the kind of heart that he has. The Lord will say later on that he wants a man after his own heart. And so here's the descriptions that are given of David. Verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, are here all thy children? And Jesse said, there remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. Verse 12, he sent and brought him. Now he was ready and with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came. The Hebrew there is actually rushed. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So Samuel went and rose and went to Ramah. Um, chapter 17, verse 5 when they're looking for David, um, all of his brothers go, well, his three oldest brothers go and join the, the army, the war. But David, the youngest, verse 14, said, uh, or sorry, David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul in verse 15. David went, now listen to this with symbolic ears that should just be burning. David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And then this, again, with symbolic ears, chapter 17, verse 20. David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him, as his father had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to fight and shouted for the battle. We could spend the entire episode, the entire study, just looking at that one verse and identifying every single place where David symbolizes Christ. This story is not just a historical account of how Israel got a king and then got another king that was better than the first king. It's intended to outline Israel's need for a righteous king. In fact, their need for the righteous king. David will be used throughout scripture now as, of course, the father of the Messiah. We know that the Messiah will come through his family, but also the symbol of the Messiah. Remember, Jesus is often uh, attributed the title son of David. Uh, when his genealogies are listed, it's very overtly pointed that Jesus is the son of David. Um, now, I know that David is mortal, and we'll read next week about the fall of David, in which he does not symbolize the Savior. Um, but in this part of the story, it's, it's, it's so overt, the comparison between Saul, a worldly king, and David, a righteous king, and the details about who David is and their connection with other prophecies of the Messiah, that you can't help but see David, at least at this part of the story, is supposed to be symbolizing to us the Lord. And so you look now at David, not just as a righteous king, but as the righteous king, and you pay attention to what it is about him that makes him so great. First of all, he's a shepherd. 
he approaches his duties with care and focus on individuals. Um, a shepherd, if you're familiar with shepherds versus sheep herders, I've, I've seen a couple of sheep herding examples, and sheep herders use dogs to bite and bark and and to corral sheep into a specific pen or formation or whatever. And there's there's competitive sheep herding even. That's sheep herding. That's not shepherding. A shepherd leads his sheep, and the sheep follow the shepherd because they know his voice and they trust him, because the shepherd is kind to them, takes care of them. Uh, And if a sheep is lost, the shepherd goes and finds that sheep and brings it back. The shepherd knows all of his sheep by name. Uh, The shepherd was there when that sheep was born, helped to care for and nurture and raise that sheep. The shepherd is there when that sheep dies. Uh, the shepherd is involved with among and a caretaker of a sheep. So the fact that David is indicated as a shepherd, that he goes uh, with his staff against Dave, against Goliath is indicative that this is a different kind of king. This isn't Saul, the worldly king with armor and sword and shield. This is David, the righteous king who comes to battle with a staff. It is his compassion and his love that gives him his incredible strength. Uh, I also love that David is an early riser. Of course, that is reference to the Savior's own resurrection. But I also love that uh, that David's the kind of person that wakes up early in the morning to get the job done. I think uh, the Savior is an early riser. I don't know how divinity sleeps, but I do know uh, that the Savior is early and eager to perform the work that's assigned by his father, as we read in in that verse in verse 20, that David goes because that's what Jesse asked him to do. Uh, the Savior is eager to rise early and to accomplish his father's work. Uh, perhaps my favorite phrase that I just noticed on this read-through and love is uh, that David came to the trench as the host was going forth to fight. I love the image of a righteous king who doesn't stand in the back and direct his troops forward into the trenches. I love the image of a righteous king who comes to the trench, into the trench as the host is going forth to battle and is with them and among them. Now, you could, of course, add to that with your own study. What other symbolic representations of the Savior do you see? What else do you learn about the Lord from this representation of him in the character of David? But perhaps more importantly is now that we have seen his handwriting inscribed in this story, can you start to recognize any of those characteristics in your own life? Can you recognize when the Savior shepherds you, um, when he calls to you, when you recognize him, when you sense his care and compassion? Uh, Can you sense him being uh, an early riser? I've I've heard so many people, I myself testify of this, that there's something magical about about the physicality of being early in the morning. Uh, I don't know if it's the calmness or the stillness or if the fact that we're just able to attune ourselves to the voice of the Spirit earlier rather than later, whatever it is. um, Is there some bit of that that has application to your life? Can there be a connection to the Savior early in the morning before the day begins? Uh, And then third, can you recognize moments when the Savior is in the trench with you? Or if you can't recognize them and you are in the trench, you now know what to pray for. Can you pray 
for the spiritual vision to recognize the Savior in the trench with you. He's there. That's his character and his personality and his nature, but often we don't recognize him and we need the eyes to see the Savior in the trench with us. So can you pray for that and ask for that vision to be able to see? Whatever it is that you see, whatever it is that you focus on, hopefully this study helps you to do those two things better. To be able to see yourself as a stone in the hands of the Lord that he can use to do great things. And then to see the Lord as a shepherding in the trench early in the morning, uh, righteous king who can lead you to whatever success it is that you're hoping to achieve in alignment with God's will. I love the epilogue to the David and Goliath story in chapter 18. Jonathan, who is heir to the throne of Saul and should be David's number one rival, but of course loves David, verse 4, stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David. Now this could be reading too much into it, but for me that had a great symbolic representation. If I'm Jonathan, Uh, who has been attached to a worldly king, or maybe myself have tried to force things that shouldn't be forced, there's an act in which I take off my robe, my right to kingship or my desire for uh, self-aggrandizement, self-success, and I give that robe to the righteous king. I I submit my will to his. Um. I love that image of me stripping off my robe and giving it to the Savior, allowing him to do what he does, to shepherd me early in the morning, to be in the trenches and fight the battles uh, for me or alongside me. And I love the idea of embracing myself as a stone, one that can be in the hands of God to do great things, of course, with his power and his authority. So hopefully this episode helped you uh, go further down that road of what you might be able to do to strip off your robe and give it to the Savior as we all are inclined to do. Thank you for studying with me this week. We'll see you next episode.